I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today on this episode, we're joined by Boyd Matheson. He's the opinion editor for the Deseret News, and he's also the host of Inside Sources on KSL News Radio here in Salt Lake City. And uh, Boyd, thank you for joining us today. Hey, great to be with you. So um, let me tell you something. I, I am I'm a bit dismayed, Boyd, and it's not your fault, sir. Has evolved in the last I don't know a few years, and certainly it's 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 kind of hit this. Um, I don't know, this, this point of disappointment and disgrace in the last month or so uh, with what happened at this uh, U.S. Capitol. I just wanted to get, get your thoughts on what do you feel like the political climate is and, and where, is it, uh, where is it potentially going? Yeah, it, you know, it's a, uh, it's a fascinating time to be sure. And uh, I think it is a time that a lot, of, uh, a lot of us are stepping back and saying, you know, where, where are we and how in the world did we get here? Uh, and I think one of the things that's most important for us to remember right out of the gate is uh, our, our politics has failed. There's no question about that. Our politics have, have failed in America, uh, but America will not. Uh, and I think that's one of the most important things for us to remember is that and, the, and there's a reason there's a reason America won't fail. And the reason it won't fail is we have to remember this simple thing. Politicians in America have never led they are a lagging indicator. It's community, it's culture that lead, and the politicians follow. So even going back to the beginning of the country, uh, you know, the, the Declaration of Independence is an amazing document, fabulous, galvanizing document to be sure, but it wasn't a leading document. The Revolutionary War had been going for 18 months before the politicians got, got around to putting some things on paper. Uh, now, again, it was important. It galvanized. But again, lagging document, not leading document. Or, or look at uh, one of my favorite examples is, is Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier in Major League Baseball in 1947. 1947. It took Congress 17 more years to pass any kind of meaningful civil rights legislation. Uh, and so the thing we have to, to take heart in as we look at a, a challenging political climate is that our politics has failed. Uh, I can be pretty pessimistic about our, polit our politics and our politicians. I've never been more bullish about the future of the country. And it's because it, it starts in our homes, our neighborhoods, and our communities. That's what's always led this country. Uh, even think, think of this example. In, 19, in the 70s, everybody was talking about all the geopolitical things that were going on and, and what this was gonna mean for the future of the world and Jimmy Carter and all of those things. Uh, and everyone was talking about the politics of it all. Nothing was ever written that in that very same year, as gas prices were going through the roof, the economy was in trouble, inflation was just crazy, interest rates skyrocketed, two guys dropped out of college. <laughs> and those two guys have had a bigger impact on people around the world than all the presidents that have been in office since then combined. 
because of what Steve Jobs and company, what they did. And so again, it's community and culture. And that's why even in the face of some really tough times in politics and in the contempt that's in the country, uh, I have great confidence in the future because it's the it's the people that are ultimately going to lead us out of here. Washington's not going to solve any of this, I guarantee you. Well, your, from your mouth to God's ears. Okay, so then let me ask you this to make it, uh, for me, it's it, it's complicated by this idea. So when, when I remember there being much discussion over the last four years about the balance of power and the checks and balances, maybe more so than any other time in my life. And, um, and, and one of the things I sort of came to, the, I came to this conclusion after a couple of years is that institutions don't on their own have integrity. We can set them up with the best of intention and, and, and American ideals. There's no higher ideals than American ideals, but, but the institutions only have integrity if the people in those who running those institutions have integrity. And so while I, I, I understand what you're saying, and to some degree, I need to give it more thought, but I, I basically feel like that's true. I also think the institutions that are setting policy for us, um, they are not always run by people with integrity. And especially now, it seems like there's so much winning and losing, you know, like it's become a sporting event for us. I don't see a way to a better place in government um, if we don't. I don't know if we don't deal with that. Like, what are your thoughts on sort of that? Idea? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, th I think that's really a, a really important idea, and and we have to. Rem but just remember that the the politics and the politicians and those working inside those institutions are lagging indicators of what's going on in our homes, our communities, in our neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, if if we want different, we have to expect different. We have to reward different. You know, for example, you know, mm -hmm. it used to be when someone was really great at the art of compromise, we would hail them as a statesman or as a woman of great integrity uh, and promise and leadership. Uh, and now what that means for a politician is if they compromise, uh, they get primaried. Yeah, they, <laughs> they, get, right. they get a primary opponent. So yeah. we're, we're rewarding all the wrong behavior. Uh, and, and it really comes it really comes to this because the, the, the trust is such a big piece of this puzzle. Uh, but p trust is a cottage industry, uh, just like truth. Uh, we once had a, a really long discussion about who's responsible for truth. And both of you have worked in the in the news media for a long time. And there's always that question, you know, who's responsible for truth? And uh, I actually had, I was writing about truth. And uh, ended up late on a deadline, and, and it was one of those, uh, you know, looking at the page, they'd left a hole for me uh, on the pages of the Deseret News on the on the draft for my article to go. And uh, my assistant, uh, Christian Sagers, had written it in red pen, truth will be written here. <laughs> and and it was the message. It was, oh, I'm responsible for truth, which mm -hmm. also means I'm responsible for building trust. And I know that seems like a really steep mountain to climb, but the momentum that happens when individuals start to take responsibility for truth and for trust, uh, the momentum, the accelerator on that is exponential and it will grow quickly. And it, it is, it's one of the things I do worry about most. The one, the one test we've never really put on our constitutional republic is can it really sustain itself? It, it sustains itself through war and, and, you know, economic things and geopolitical things. But can it survive with an absence of 
of trust. If we drain all the trust, so we start to fray the fabric of society where we stop trusting each other, uh, that's that's a really scary test. And, you know, it used to be Pew Research has this, uh, they do this every year uh, on trust. And it used to be, if you ask the question, uh, do you trust your neighbor? I mean, that used to be like an 80, 83% thing. Of course I trust my, I, I know my neighbor, I trust my neighbor. You know what that is now? It's 10. below 20. I was going to say 20%. <laughs> and with, and with the younger generations, it's, it's in, it's in yeah. single digits. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we've lost that. And there's only one way to, to rebuild that. And that's to actually engage in, in conversations with our neighbor. We have to know our neighbors mm -hmm. <laughs> right. yeah. uh, and we have to engage in our communities. It's interesting you should say that because I, I literally only know one of my neighbors, or two of them, and I, and I live I've lived in the same neighborhood uh, since 2004. That is really sad. But uh, when we come back, I want to uh, talk about civility, and again, uh, just uh, knowing each other and being willing to engage in a way that's uh, again goes back to that that notion of civility, which is why I mean I started this show in the first place. So we're speaking today with Boyd Matheson. He's the opinion editor for the Deseret News, and he also hosts Inside Sources on KSL News Radio here in Salt Lake City. With Amy Donaldson, I'm Jason Lee. This is Voices of Reason. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America, but this story is still unfolding. I'm Andreas Martin, and my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. We are back with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson, speaking today with Boyd Matheson, the opinion editor and host of Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. He's the opinion editor in the Deseret News, with which uh, Amy used to work, and now I still do. Uh, but that's a whole other topic we'll talk <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah, but I now I work for KSL. So that is true. So yeah, she just she just family. went to a different floor, same building. <laughs> but uh, so so Boyd, uh, you know, January sixth, a day that will go down in infamy. Uh, happened in our country, and you spoke earlier about trusting people, trusting your neighbor, and having to engage in a way that you know could potentially be uh, fruitful. But we saw what I consider to be the worst of America on that day, because uh, a, a mob of uh, very angry, you know, I don't even know what to describe these. these a mob of people, Americans, stormed the, uh, the United States Capitol, uh, in which five people died. And, uh, you know, including a police officer for the Capitol Police, and they destroyed and desecrated many places within the Capitol. And it was it was just uh, it was horrific. Based on what we saw there, we would uh, it was a sense of the political climate. They they felt as though they were following kind of the instruction or at least the sentiment of former President Donald Trump. And they they feel like they wanted to stop the steal is what they call it, though they have no basis of fact on which to, uh to make that accusation, what do we do in the face of something like that? And then we come back to the uh, the uh, impeachment trial, which Mitch McConnell said, though I voted to acquit him, I do believe he was guilty. <laughs> so there, there's a hypocrisy. And this is just on in the, uh, the Republican Party. How do, how do we deal with all of that going forward? 
Yeah, so so let's start with January sixth. Um, that was a that was a really tough day uh, for for so many, uh, with lives lost, with uh, sacred spaces uh, just desecrated. Uh, as someone who you know was a chief of staff in Washington D.C., uh, I, I had the ability to walk around the Capitol uh, at will, and, and in fact, every night. Uh, usually about midnight or a little after when my day would finally end, I would actually walk across the Capitol uh, through the Capitol Rotunda uh, on my way to my little one-bedroom flat over a guy's garage. Uh, <laughs> and I always stopped in the Rotunda, uh, and I would sit there. And there is nothing more magical anywhere in the world than being in that Rotunda all by yourself at midnight. And... So to see the images there was a gut punch of all gut punches to me, uh, because that that's sacred ground to me. Uh, and you think of the people who've walked through there, the important conversations and debates that have taken place there, uh, so many things. And so that was a real gut punch. And, and so I found myself kind of doubled over on January the 6th. Um, but I, I, I went through kind of my own process uh, and, and the first thing I did is that, you know, we got to take note of this uh, and, and ask how we got here. Uh, we have to examine all of that. Uh, mm -hmm. I always use the phrase, we, we've got to remember that anyone who plants thistles in the spring is not expecting to, to harvest fruit in the fall. Yeah. And so we have to call out hate for what it is. Uh, we have to stand up to those kinds of things. We should also take heart, though. Uh, it was it was probably the most important moment of that whole day was, was just six hours after those angry rioters uh, filled with contempt and rage, uh, you know, brought Congress and the work of the people to a screeching halt. Just six hours later, the vice president gaveled the Senate back in and the work of the people continued. We should take great heart in that. There aren't very many places around the world that would have survived such a thing. Uh, and so I have great confidence in that, that uh, we, we, we have a, a nation, we have a soul uh, to it. And then we have, to, we have to take courage in all of this. Uh, and that's where each of us have to become responsible. Uh, Gaylord Swim, a, a great Utahn uh, who did a lot of good in the political space, uh, he said something that's really become kind of an anthem to me. Uh, he's a guy I never met, but he's had a great influence on me. Uh, he said the political process requires strong advocates, certainly. And I think that's true. We do have to be strong in that. Uh, America's always at its best when we're big, open, even roiling debate about important issues. Mm -hmm. uh, but Gaylord Swim then went on to say it also takes a counterbalancing sense of humility, civility and dialogue. Uh, and then he went on, he said, the political course leads to power struggles, pride, vanity, egocentric ambition, ending in acrimony, manifests itself in strident voices, character assassinations, protest demonstrations, cloakroom deals and corruption. Uh, and so we have to take courage to stand up to that. And I have to remind myself uh, and everyone else uh, <laughs> that it's easy. It's easy to shout at your enemies. It's much harder to tell your friends that when they're wrong. And we have to be willing to do both those things.
So, so in that vein, and and I've been having a love hate relationship with your work for the last couple of months. <laughs> I have too. Just so you, just so you know, you're not. I, alone. I, 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 have, I have joked about it, but I'm like, oh, he's like Jiminy Cricket following me around, saying, "You're not going to do that. You're not going to say that. Don't post that." <laughs> um, but this idea of civility has one. I, I especially the last year and a half, I'd say, I've really had a, a hateful relationship with because. It's the reason Jason and I started this podcast. It, it's something I have believed in all of my life. You get nothing done by fighting fire with fire. Just everybody gets burned in that situation. So I've I've seen it myself. I've used it in my life where there's been a bad situation and I've entered it with love and forgiveness and it's gotten better. It's improved it. But I would say that like I've come to be persuaded at times that sometimes the call for civility I just wonder, do you think sometimes it is really a way to hold on to the status quo or is there a way to be civil in a time when, like you say, courage amongst your friends is what's really required? Like, I, I, I don't, I mean, tell me about your struggle with that idea of civility. And I've felt a lot like I, I'm sort of persuaded at times that am I, am I begging to hold on to the status quo? Cause right now I hate the status quo and I don't, I want it to go away. <laughs> I want yeah. it to get better, but you know, just do you have a thought on that. Yeah. I think it's, uh, and, and just so you, you know, uh, Amy, I, I do have the same struggle with my own work and, <laughs> and I always tell, I always tell people my immediate audience is always myself. That's right. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. I'm writing myself off the ledge. And, <laughs> and, uh, but I think one of the important things to, to keep in mind is civility. Civility is not a passive thing. It's not about cowering in the corner. And it's not about group hugs or kumbaya either. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's about being positioned and creating space uh, where we can move forward. So civility uh, is an interesting thing, but civility alone is not enough. Uh, I, I'm sort of the uh, of the Arthur Burke's persuasion that uh, he always uses uh, a great example. He says, you know, if I told you that my wife and I were civil with each other, <laughs> you, you'd say we needed counseling. <laughs> right. And, and I think that's true of the country. Yeah. Uh, and so it it actually requires something more than civility. We actually have to love our enemy. <laughs> well, uh, I don't. I, I'm not even necessarily going to love them, but you got to respect them. Yeah, and because that's right. I, I feel as though you know there are plenty of us who disagree, right? And and which is odd because Amy and I are kind of we switch points because she got me to believe that you got to you 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 can be angry, but somehow you still have to find it in yourself to be respectful. And I but what I see at least in, in you know on the big screen here and looking at the the political leaders of the, the parties, they're not always respectful. And, right. and, and it, so it's hard to watch that. And, and as you said earlier, you feel like they trail the, uh, you know, the rest of us. So that means we're giving them a bad example. How do <laughs> how, we, so how do we do better in, in about a minute? <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, that's right. And it, does, it is, it's up to, uh, I always say that uh, we, the people have to be the people. Mm -hmm. We have to be the one to, uh, to respond, not with anger, not with hate and not with contempt. Contempt is the real problem in the country. Uh, because it's this idea that uh, because I disagree with you, you are of no value. Because, Jason, if I disagree with you and I have contempt for you, I can melt down your Twitter feed. I can blow up your Facebook page and I can still sleep at night and go to church on Sunday morning and feel good about myself. Uh, and that's not going to get it done. So it starts with each of us saying, what am I putting out? What am I sending out? Uh, and can I be the one uh, that can make a difference? 
When we come back, we'll continue our discussion. We're, we're talking today with Boyd Matheson. He is the opinion editor of the Deseret News and host of Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. With Amy Donaldson, I'm Jason Lee. You're listening to Voices of Reason. We are back once again with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee with Amy Donaldson. Speaking today with Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News and host of Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. And uh, Boyd, you know, we, we, we've been kind of talking about civility and, you know, as we think about it, supposedly we, the people, are supposed to teach our, legis our leaders, our um, legislative and, and political leaders, how to behave. Well, uh, at least in Washington, uh, the, the Democrats and the Republicans, they do not play well together. So uh, what, do you, what do you, just from your point of view, and I would ask you to start with Republicans. What do you see uh, of the party and, and its behavior today, uh, these days? And similarly, what do you what do you see from the Democrats as any better or worse? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think both parties uh, have some reckoning. <laughs> it's it's a day of reckoning for both parties, in in my view. Uh, I think the uh, Republicans have to to reckon uh, with the fact that Joe Biden is now the president of the United States. They have to reckon with the fact that something uh, resonated and and worked for the American people. Uh, I think they they have to to resonate that they're still perceived as a, a class of the country club, uh, narrow-minded, wealthy, and so on. Uh, and I think the Democrats have a, a lot of challenges as well. Uh, and so I think the the parties themselves are. Uh, are really ill-suited to to move things forward because they're they're both playing to the extremes. They're both playing to their bases, and I, I think an important thing for us to to recognize is we we assign all of this power to the Republican Party and all of this power to the Democratic Party, uh, and we have to realize that both of those institutions exist in a zero-sum political game. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that's not helping any of us. <laughs> well, so that's, how do we oh, ahead, reclaim Amy. that power, though, Boyd? How do yeah, we so, so, and power is the word, Amy. The, the biggest thing, and, and I've been shouting this, at, at, I'm an equal opportunity offender on this one. So mm -hmm. whether someone's on the left or the right, uh, the question is, what are you afraid of? And what people are afraid of is losing power. Yes, uh, and that applies to politicians. I mean, I was amazed going back to D.C. as a chief of staff, not as a political guy, but as a as a business guy. Most of the battles back there aren't even left and right anymore. It's the people in power against everyone else. There are more deals that are done by the four person law firm of Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy. Mm -hmm. than any, they're all done behind closed doors. Anytime you hear that phrase behind closed doors, you should get a shiver up your spine. It's not good. Yeah. Uh, but it's about power. And here's the other thing. Holding on to power, the easiest way to hold on to power is to convince people that you're too divided to solve a problem. Yes. Because if the Democrats and Republicans can convince the American people that we're too divided to deal with immigration or health care, guess what? Status quo remains and the people in power stay in power. And so part of it is for we, the people, again, to recognize that we actually have the power, but we have to be willing to let go of it in order to actually obtain it. So what I, oh, sorry, go, ahead. go ahead. I was just going to add, I just going to ask a question along those lines then. So how, if we're, I, I believe this idea that things are too confusing or too difficult, 
is a way for them to not be held accountable for the decisions yes. they are making or are not making. So I guess, how do we, um, how do we persist in saying you have to do this? Because it doesn't seem like elections are the source of accountability that they're supposed to be anymore. They're, they're not. And the reason they're not is because of the two parties, because, because people will tell you, Amy, I know you want to vote for that independent person, but you know, that's just throwing your vote away. And, and they convince us that we have, we will lose something. The, the incumbents here, here's the amazing thing, Amy, and this, this just kills me every time I have to say this. We complain about politicians all the time. Do you know how many incumbents across this country won re-election in 2020? Uh, it's awful, I know. 94%. Yeah. <laughs> so we get the so same we, guys that we hate. We, 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 uh, we, uh, we say we hate. We just keep getting yeah. those same people over and over again. That's right, because it's, it's, I call this the Dennis Rodman syndrome. <laughs> Everybody hated Dennis Rodman. Everybody Unless he was on your team. Unless he was your Dennis Rodman. That's right. The Chicago Bulls detested everything 100%. about Dennis Rodman 100%. until he was their Dennis Rodman. And then yeah, we, and we, 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 we kind of didn't like him then, but then we saw some of the good in him. <laughs> even right. though we realized... 17 we, we, rebounds. That's right, right, right. We, we, were, we were making a deal with the devil. That's right. Well, it's usefulness, right? And I see this yeah. in politics, right? So I think this is what I saw happening with Trump at first was... They didn't. People didn't like him. People that I knew and that were voting Republican didn't want to vote for him. They didn't think he was the best candidate, but they saw him as useful. I felt this from the Democrats when um, Joe Biden was the one that rose yeah. to the top after uh, South Carolina. It was well, you know, it will be useful to have, you know, our people in power. And yes. I, is there any hope of having three or four parties in this country, or are we just stuck? I, I think it is possible as long as we, the people, realize where the power is. So so here, here's this, just a quick numbers game. So everybody says, well, 74 million, voted, 74 million people voted for Donald Trump. Well, that's true. But probably 45 million of them voted for him solely because he had an R behind his name and they couldn't bring themselves to vote for a Biden-Harris ticket. Another 20 million probably voted for him on a single issue like the Supreme Court nominations. And so the actual number is pretty small. And you can do the exact same breakdown with Joe Biden. There's probably 45 million who voted for him just because they could not stomach anyway voting for someone with an R or for Donald Trump. Uh, another percentage on specific issues, maybe it was climate change, healthcare, immigration, uh, single issue voters. And so the reality, this is the reality. We've been doing some studies on this. Uh, there is what we call the movable middle. The movable middle in this country has vast power. The country is a center left to center right nation. And most people in that center left to center right have disconnected themselves from the political process because they can't stand it. <laughs> and they're busy living their lives. They're working hard. They're providing for their family. They're volunteering in their community. They're doing all the things uh, that make the country extraordinary. And so they disconnected. And here's the fascinating thing that we've discovered. The only way to get these people to re-engage and be a force and a voice in the political system is to talk about community, compassion, self-reliance, and opportunity or upward mobility. Now think about that. <laughs> community, compassion, self-reliance, and upward mobility or opportunity. You don't hear either political party really talking about that a whole lot. 
Uh, and yet that's where it really is. And, and I actually think uh, this, this will sound super crazy, but one of the, the positive legacies of Donald Trump, there is, there is one, and this is it. He was so transactional. He's not a relationship guy. Everything to President Trump was a transaction, which is why he could stand side by side with Cory Booker and Nancy Pelosi in the morning on criminal justice reform. And then he could be melting down their Twitter feed in the afternoon on a separate issue. Everything to him was a transaction, no relationship. Uh, Mitch McConnell, of course, incurred all kinds of problems because he thought he had a relationship with President Trump uh, because they were of the same political party, only to discover in the end that everything to, to President Trump was a transaction. Now, the positive benefit to that that I hope comes through is that we will have a more transactional nature to our politics. So, Amy, if you and I disagree on 99% of everything, but we agree on one bill or one piece of legislation, let's go get that deal done. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that could be where we could start to see more parties emerge. It would be a little bit more of a European style where you sort of have coalition uh, government mm -hmm. going on. Uh, but I think that's possible. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because it allows people who disagree on the vast majority of issues to come together on things they agree on and actually get things done for the good of the country. When we come back, we're going to continue this discussion. And again, he's giving me some hope. Thank you, boy. <laughs> I, I don't know where else, because I was not getting it anywhere else. Uh, <laughs> Wood Matheson, uh, Deseret News opinion editor and host of the Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. With Amy Donaldson, I'm Jason Lee. This is Voices of Reason. back with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson, speaking today with Boyd Matheson. He is the Deseret News opinion editor and host of Inside Sources on KSL News Radio here in Salt Lake City. Uh, you know, Boyd, we, I was uh, just mentioning to you kind of offline there that, you know, I appreciate that you, you have kind of a, a pragmatic but optimistic point of view in that this is how we can make things happen if we, uh, if we the people, have the will to do it and, and we have uh, the gumption to face up to our problems and then kind of resolve them in a way that is beneficial to the vast majority of us. But I, I will tell you that uh, going back to the impeachment trial, I remember uh, when the Senate voted and, uh, you know, people gave Mitch McConnell this a lot of publicity for, you know, excoriating the president after he voted to acquit him. So to me, the what was maddening, disappointing, just, I mean, I, I didn't know what to do with myself is him saying, I voted to acquit and then telling me in, uh, out of the other side of his mouth that he was responsible for what happened. He, it was his words, his actions that uh, precipitated what we all consider one of the worst days in U.S. history. That's the kind of politics that has gotten us where we are. He knows he did the wrong thing, but yet he, and he kind of owned up to it, but he still did it anyway. I mean, how, how do you look at that and then have faith in the system, have faith in the party? If you're in the, Demo uh, the Republican Party right now, you, you got to be ashamed for the people that are leading it, I mean. Yeah, yeah and, and I think it's, uh, it's fascinating to look at uh, in terms of, of under fire, under pressure in those moments. You know, some people really rise up uh, and take that moment and some just cower in the corner. Uh, and the important thing for us to remember is, is that we one, we've been here before. Uh, 
uh, as a country. And I know that's that's hard to kind of wrap our heads around, uh, <laughs> but but there's been several times where we we have been at this. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me get, let me give you two just really quick examples. So when when Thomas Jefferson won and uh, won the election, it was the most contentious election they'd had. Uh, and the news reports of the day that Jefferson was to be sworn in, people were worried that there would be a riot, a rebellion, and possibly a second revolution. Thomas Jefferson did something really significant on that day. The news report said that he entered the Senate chamber to be sworn in as president of the United States wearing ordinary civilian clothing. Uh, both Washington and Adams had been sworn in in their military garb with a ceremonial sword, and Jefferson left the ceremonial sword at home. Uh, a lot of us could learn to do that and just leave that verbal mm-hmm. <laughs> sword at home, so to speak. Uh, but we also had a, a similar thing in the in the Gilded Age, late 1800s. Uh, and it's, I, I did this interview with Robert Putnam uh, earlier this week, and Which he's done deep deep study on this and Mm -hmm. and deep dive into the numbers. And and it was a very divisive time. The political rhetoric was horrific. The political leaders were not standing up and doing their job. Uh, You had isolation, loneliness, income disparity, all the things that we're experiencing right now. And, And so he looked at it in terms of, okay, so we have been here before, but what let us out of it? And it's really interesting what uh, made that shift. It was very much a narcissistic I. It's all about me society. And he said the shift uh, was that we became more of a we society. It was about association and coming together as community, back to the community. He also said really interesting. It was really driven by young people who had sensed that loneliness, that disconnection. Mm -hmm. And so it was the young people finding new ways to connect, <laughs> to connect with each other and connect with those founding principles. Enter TikTok. <laughs> yeah, here we right. go. So game on. Yeah. So I, I, I think we're in a good spot. Well, but so I, I, I love that interview and that piece that you wrote on that as well. Or, um, but I, I just, I wondered when I was reading that and it talks about, and you talk, or he talks about the moral awakening. Um, do you think we're capable of that right now? I mean, I, I think morals are, there's like everything it's so different depending on who you're talking to what is moral what isn't moral um i i just see sometimes that and it's not about two sides it's about all these different um sort of perspectives or fractions or factions of us right we're we're kind of shattered like glass at this moment and and i do see this uh in, and I've said amongst for kids about kids, my kids for a long time, they, my kids are my best teachers. They are 10 times mm-hmm. more compassionate and more moral than I am. And they have really expanded what I see in the world and how I see it. But I don't know um, how that translates into um, our laws, into our governing process. And when I see them wheel in a golden version of Donald Trump at, at the conservative, um, you know, think tank uh, gathering, I sort of, am, I'm like, are we at that moment? Like, is this a rec- Is this the reckoning? Are we still there? Or have we shifted at all? And I'm wondering what gives you hope in this moment that we are going to be, because listen, I, I've, I've had a really great conversation with the pastor of Calvary Baptist uh, for my story. And one of the things we talked about was, isn't it interesting that what was asked of us during the pandemic was to 
to do something that kept other people safe. It didn't, Mm -hmm. the mask wasn't about keeping me safe. The mask was about protecting the people around me. And if we all did that for one another, all of us would be safer. We would protect the most vulnerable and we would protect one another. But some of us couldn't take that step to, to be, you know, to make that sacrifice of personal comfort or whatever for the, for the greater group. So again, what gives you hope that we're moving into a moral awakening in this moment, or is it still a ways off? And I just, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> no, I, I, I uh, like I said, I, I've never been more bullish about the future of the country. Uh, and it's because of, of people. Uh, it, it's places like Utah. Someone who falls into poverty in this state has a better chance of not just getting out of poverty, but of making it into the middle class or their version of the American dream than, than almost anywhere in the world. And, and the reason the reason for that is we have we have a government that's responsible and mostly mostly restrained. Uh, so we have a good, and we have a good free market economy. So there's jobs and opportunities, and then we have these robust institutions, the civil society. We have great religious groups, uh, you know, great pastors and and synagogues, and we have businesses that give back to the community and are engaged in the community. You look at what happened just over the weekend with the the Utah Jazz and and uh, you know what they're doing with racism and the LGBTQ com- community. Uh, that's what gives me incredible hope. Uh, because when we do come together like that, uh, that's where it begins. And it will take time and it will be a slow slog because, remember, the people in power want to stay in power. Uh, and they will try to convince us that we, we can't solve. We can't solve the climate issue. We can't solve immigration. Uh, and the reality is if you travel this country and you go into the communities, it's like, oh, yeah, I love that. Oh, look at that. There's, you know, there's Amy Donaldson coaching another Little League team. You know, rate, helping young girls figure it out and gain confidence and skills. Uh, and that's that's the magic of America. And you can go all the way back to Tocqueville in the 1830s and 40s. He said the power of this country, this amazing thing that is America, is their willingness to freely associate. The government doesn't demand it. Uh, it's the old barn raising. You know, if your neighbor's barn burned down, you just went and built another one. Not because the government told you to or threatened you with a tax or a penalty if you didn't. It's, it's who you are and what you do. And it's, it's the thing that gives me hope is we have this great rugged individualism in this country, but we have this compassion to come together uh, as communities. And we all have to have faith in that. We all have to trust in that. Mm-hmm. But most important, we all have to engage in that. And as people continue to engage in that, the politics will swing. You'll see it. But just remember, don't don't get don't start you know pulling up the flower to check the roots by the politics. <laughs> yeah. Politics is the lagging indicator. Uh, watch community. Watch yeah. your neighbors. Engage with your you know your your church, your synagogue, or your volunteer organization in the community, uh, because that's where you're going to see it, uh, and that's where the rebirth of the of the country will really happen. I want to say thank you to Boyd Matheson uh, for joining me today, me and Amy today, because. Uh, he got me off the cliff, and I appreciate that because I hate being there. It's, it's, it's a scary place to be. He's the Deseret News opinion editor and host of Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. Join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about the show, please contact us via email at vormed at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at adonsports and at jasonlee1. Our show's Twitter handle is at vorpodcast. 
Check out our Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or any other place where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project. All right. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.